Today, we're going to be talking about suicide. Please take caution when listening to the show. And if you're feeling depressed or you just want to talk to someone, in the U.S., you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You know, I saw Chris less than 24 hours before he died. I very, very specific memories of the day. There are certain days you never forget. All the details are carved into your memory. What you saw, what you heard, what you felt. And no matter how many years drift by, it's all still there, crystal clear. For Sophia Chang, a close friend of Chris Lighty, one of those days is August 29th, 2012. It was hot. And uh, I was telling him about, think about an apartment I was thinking of renting. He had just had his hair cut. This guy used to come to his office, SZA. He would do it two or three times a week. And uh, we were walking. His office was on 16th Street, just west of Irving Place. And he said, so come and walk me to the sandwich spot. I'm going to go to the sandwich spot. He was wearing a black PK cotton, like a polo shirt. And he had a little bit of powder on his shoulder, on his right shoulder. I dusted it off, and I said, you got your head cut today? He said, yeah. And then he said to me, come see me tomorrow, Soph. Everything seemed totally normal, as it often does. The day after Sophia dusted off Chris's shoulder, he was found dead at his Bronx home. The official cause of death, a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. No one saw this coming. And when the news broke, there were many who refused to believe it. And even now, years later, they still don't. Chris was a strong, powerful man, a rich man, a successful man. Only a handful of people close to Chris knew what we know now, that his marriage was falling apart, that he was drowning in debt, that a huge loan had just come due, that there was a warrant out for his arrest for unpaid child support. That despite all his public success, he was barely holding it together. On this episode, we look back at Chris Lighty's last day. I'm Reggie Osei, and this is Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty. A production of Gimlet Media and the Loudspeakers Network. August 30th, 2012, Labor Day weekend. Tiffany Lighty, Chris's eldest daughter, was leaving her father's house in the Bronx to catch a flight to Toronto. And she wasn't the only one who was leaving. Veronica kept saying it, like, all week, like, okay, Tiffany's leaving on the 30th to go to Toronto. Like, Chris, you're leaving also on the 30th. You're getting kicked out of the house. Like, you need to go and figure it out or something. Things had been rocky between Chris and his wife, Veronica, for a long time. They were the affairs. And then, as we know from the police report we told you about earlier, there was the abuse. And now, after a decade of marriage, it looked like things were coming to an end. There were 
there were boxes in the car. I remember in the Range Rover. I remember putting my hands, like blocking the sunlight and like leaning on the window of the Range Rover and saying, Dad, like, look, there's boxes in the car. Like, she's serious. She's packing your shit. She's packing, yeah. He just like, you know, just sighed and was just like, shook his head. Tiffany had spent the summer after her college graduation living with Chris and Veronica in the Bronx. It had not been a good summer. It was a tumultuous time, with Chris and Veronica fighting a lot. She told us about one of the fights she witnessed. They were fighting in the house. She was hitting him, and I was there, and I saw it. And and me pulling her off of him, and then her just like, kind of like threatening to like hit me. Then he was then he was like, "Whoa, Veronica! Like you know, like no." <laughs> We're not doing this. Then they stopped fighting. And then me going into my room, and then I remember texting her niece, who I was close to, and telling her, like, uh, like I can't be in this house anymore. Um, you know, even though I had just graduated college, and obviously, you know, like, you go home, and after you graduate, and you end up, you know, living at home for a bit and, you know, figuring out what you're going to do and where you're going to live and what you're going to do for a living. And so I was like, well, I can't do that here. I wanted to talk to Veronica about this, but she declined to be interviewed. On August 30th, Tiffany packed up her suitcase and walked out the door. This is before Uber, so he put me in a car service. I gave him a hug and, like, someone asked me, like, oh, like, when he gave you that hug, like, did it feel like the last hug. And I was like, not at all. You know, when you hug someone with one arm versus two, it was a one arm hug. It was like a see you later hug. It was normal. I got in the car and then I was texting him, like saying I got to the airport, got to my gate. I remember opening an email that he sent me, and he said, I'm sorry for how everything turned out. Like, I, I really am sorry for it. I read that, and I took it as, okay, he's apologizing for the chaos and mayhem that I just had to witness really all summer while I was there. I called him just to say, like, you don't have to apologize to me, Dad. Like, don't apologize to me at all. Like, it's not—I clearly see it's not you, and then— he was just quiet on the phone, and and I didn't really know what to say. I was like, what do you say to, like, your dad who was getting kicked out? I felt so bad leaving, but I just didn't want to be there because it was just so painful and, like, horrible to witness. In retrospect now, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, I wish I would not have left that day. While Tiffany was in the air, Chris's assistant, Bubba Barker, was on his way into the violator offices. I was on the train, and Leo's assistant called me while I was, you know, passing through the train. I got reception. I'm like, hey, what up, cat? She's like, Bubba, what's, what's going on? Where are you? I'm like, well, I'm on the train going to work. She's like, why are we getting these calls saying, you know, Chris hurt himself? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. She's like, yeah, Leo's losing his mind here. And somebody said Chris hurt himself. You need to get to the office now. 
I jumped off on the Canal Street two stops before I had to get off. Ran from Canal Street to our office at the time. I get to the office and my colleagues, you know, other assistants, stay downstairs. Bubba don't go upstairs. I'm like, why? Chris killed himself. Bubba walks out into the crowded Manhattan streets. He's numb. In a daze. He can't believe what he just heard. It must be some kind of mistake. Some error. Chris killed himself? Not that Chris Lighty. Not his Chris Lighty. I start screaming. Screaming on 8th Avenue and 16th Street. Screaming inside my lungs. Somebody think it's a bomb threat because all the people around me in front of the Starbucks turned around looking at me. But I didn't know what to feel. I didn't, I didn't know what happened. Meanwhile, Tiffany had just landed in Toronto. When she turned her phone on, it wouldn't stop ringing. People were all calling and texting her with the same message. Come home, Tiffany. You have to get back to New York. That was all they'd say because no one wanted to be the one to tell her that her father was dead. One of the first calls was actually my little sister. And in between me getting calls, I was trying to call my dad. And so, and he wasn't picking up. Then I get a call from Veronica's sister saying, Tiffany, you need to come home. Tiffany, you need to come home. And I'm like, why? What What happened? Like, are they fighting? What happened? Like, I just kept asking, like, what happened? And then Veronica got on the phone briefly and she's like, "Come, you need to come home. And I hear her, like, she's kind of like upset and then um i had to call tiffany she like what's up bubba i didn't know what to say to her bubba what's up and he's like you need to come home and then i just was like all right like what's going on guys like you need to tell me like i just landed here i'm just i'm just like blurting things out like trying to guess what happened i was like did this happen did that happen did this happen at first i was asking like did they hurt each other i was like did something i will obviously i had spoken to veronica so i knew that she was obviously still alive tears is flying she's not hearing me but the tears is flying right now i said yo just get back on the plane and she said to me did my dad do anything to himself and then he said yes in my mind i still thought like Maybe he was still alive. I'm like, is he in the hospital? Like, what's happening? Like, I can't remember if um, if I guessed it or if he told me. I'm pretty sure I guessed it. Like, is he alive or not? He didn't tell me, like, how or what. He did tell me no. Back in the Bronx, family and friends were starting to arrive at Chris's house. Bubba had linked up with Buster Rhymes, and they drove to Chris's place together. When they pulled up, they found a chaotic scene outside. The reality set in once we got up to that house. Daryl Thompson, Chris's friend, and one of the original violators arrived around the same time. I get to the house. Chris Ali is there. Buster, his wife is there with her family. Her ex-husband is there. Some police officers, some detectives. So I got to Chris Ali. He said, well, the family was for some reason wasn't letting people in the house. I said, why not? Fuck that. Uh-uh. We going in. So I went right through everybody and went right through and I just walked in the house. And when I saw Mike Lighty, then we was just trying to piece stuff together. The house looks regular until you get down to 
where everything happened. Downstairs, they saw Chris's body. Here's how the medical examiner's report describes the scene. The decedent was found on the basement level outside the patio near the entrance of the house. He was found clothed, lying in a supine position between the wet bar and the patio doors. There were two open wounds found on bilateral temporal areas that expelled clotted blood. No other injuries were noted. The two wounds in Chris's head were from the bullet, one where it went in and one where it came out. Daryl told us the body was too heavy for the medical examiner to lift, so he and Chris's brother Mike stepped in and helped carry Chris up the narrow staircase. Here's Mike. You know, my brother was a big guy. You know, he's not no little, you know, guy where you're going to have two 100-pound uh, dudes uh, lift him and get him into the uh, truck. So they, they actually uh, needed somebody to help him assist it. That right there was just tearing me up just to pick up my brother in a black bag, zippered, and then put him in the truck. It was, it was probably like the most craziest Hardest experiences ever in my life. What was going on through your mind? <sighs> mm. Honestly, I wanted to unzipper it and just uh, <laughs> just take w- one more look at him. You know, right? Because I, I just couldn't believe it. I just, I just couldn't believe that that was what happened. You know. Once they pull that body out there, eruption. Eruption. Buster falls as if his bones are spaghetti. He falls. How I caught him, don't know. Everybody's walking around like zombies. Q-tip, he's just walking around with his hands in his pockets, not saying nothing to nobody. And then he just yells out, this don't fucking feel right. Those words that Q-Tip screamed into the afternoon sky, this don't fucking feel right. He wasn't alone in thinking that. So many people who heard about Chris's death that day didn't accept, couldn't accept what they were being told by the police, that Chris had taken his own life. Here's Chris's mother, Jessica. And immediately I had my doubts that it happened the way they said I do not believe that my son killed himself. I just do not. It just doesn't make sense. This is Scott Lehman. He's an attorney from New York who worked with Chris and represented some of his artists. Tell me in any other situation where there's a death like this that is not even a cursory investigation, something stinks. Almost every time we interviewed someone, They would share some version of this feeling. Something stinks. Something's off. We don't know the whole truth. Chris's family felt so strongly about this that they hired Lehman to do an independent investigation into his death. As we've been working on this story, we've looked into some of the concerns that people have about what happened that day. First, how fast the death was labeled a suicide. The medical examiner's report tells us that Chris was pronounced dead at 11.43 a.m. Around 6 p.m., a detective declared the death a suicide and reported no foul play. That conclusion was reached in less than seven hours. 
Again, Chris's mother, Jessica. Declaring my son a suicide in less than 24 hours to me was purely a matter of it's a holiday weekend. They've already got plans and he's just a black man and they don't care. Then there's the way the scene was handled. Like we heard earlier, a lot of people came into the house after Chris died. Daryl Thompson and Mike Lighty told us they carried the body up the stairs. Here's my producer, Matt, asking Scott Lehman about that. A lot of people were there, and they weren't just outside the house. They they were inside the house. They were walking around. Does that mean the crime scene was, was compromised? Technically, in their situation, there was no crime scene. So they didn't coordinate it off like a crime scene. So there was nothing in their view to be compromised. Was it compromised in the pursuit? If anyone was really looking for evidence, absolutely. But the problem is, from Jump Street, when the cops got there, they didn't treat this like a crime. Whoever had their initial conversations with the police, and I believe Veronica had the initial ones, and whoever else was there convinced NYPD that it was a suicide, and NYPD took that for gospel. It needs to be said that a lot of suspicions people have are focused on Veronica. She was there when it happened. She was the one who reported it. People knew they had a volatile relationship. And frankly, a lot of people already disliked her. But let's be clear. All of that is speculation and rumor. We haven't seen any evidence to suggest that Veronica had any hand in Chris's death. There were two autopsies done on Chris's body. The first was done by the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. It confirmed what the police thought. Suicide. The second was part of Scott Lehman's investigation. It was done by Dr. Michael Bodden, a forensic pathologist who's worked on some high-profile cases. If you were to give us a probability that this was a suicide, would you say it was 50%, 70%? I would say that the evidence thus far points to suicide, except I'm, I'm a, a bit concerned that the family hasn't been able to get the results of the additional tests that were requested by the medical examiner. The additional test he's referring to is a gunshot residue test. If there was residue on Chris's hands, it would suggest he was holding the gun when it went off. We know from the medical examiner's report that gunshot residue samples were taken from Chris's hands, but we don't know if those samples were ever tested. If they were, the results were never shared with the Lighty family. Dr. Botton couldn't get access to that information, but here's what he could tell us based on his autopsy. According to Baden, there are two things that point towards suicide. Number one, the gunshot wound. At the time of discharge, the muzzle of the weapon was against the side of the head. And then it was approximately a horizontal wound and exited the other side of the head. In other words, that gun was pressed right up against Chris's temple. He wasn't shot from a distance. Number two. There were no signs of a struggle. That was one of the questions uh, the family had. Is uh, There was no evidence um, at the autopsy that uh, Mr. Lighty had suffered any kind of other injuries, no uh, struggling kind of injuries, no uh, uh, ecchymoses, no black eyes, no bruises, no scrapes. 
So there was no evidence of a, um, a struggle. This is the guy who was hired by Chris's family to challenge the city's conclusion that Chris killed himself. But instead, everything he told us seemed consistent with the NYPD's version of events. We reached out to the NYPD on multiple occasions, but they declined to comment on the case. Scott Lehman is still urging them to reopen the investigation. Coming up after the break, a closer look at what's going on inside Chris Lighty's head. Welcome back to Mogul. Before the break, we talked about the aspects of Chris Lighty's death that led many people to question if he committed suicide. And a lot of people still don't accept the official cause of death. They're still convinced that Chris Lighty did not take himself out. And you can see why. Look at the man they saw. The guy with so much charisma and ambition. The man behind so many landmark deals. The guy who just kept winning. Because he's a king. Kings don't do that to themselves. Black men don't kill themselves. Nah, hell no. What you got killed himself for? What, what reason? We don't know. Remember, the things we told you about Chris in previous episodes, about his marriage and his finances, the truth is that most people didn't know that stuff. I think he parsed out the information. That's Sophia Cheng again. I don't think he told any one person everything. He wasn't really allowed wasn't really allowed to be a chink in the armor. But by the same token, he didn't really, he wouldn't show it, right? But, yeah, I think once we all started talking to each other, different things were revealed. I just felt like he would look tired sometimes. I would see him, and I would notice that the shirt he had on on Thursday, he had on more Monday. He was disappearing a lot. He wasn't talking to people the way he was talking, or hanging out, or, you know, like he was very absent. Even when he was there, he was still absent. He wasn't being the talkative person that he always used to be. He didn't feel he had a purpose anymore. Like, everything was always attached to the entertainment business, and I'm like, yo, your life is bigger than the entertainment business. Like, his life was attached to his clients and the success of his clients. Which is dangerous. Right. I've learned how to see signs in people. I can kind of see the weight. Sometimes I can see the um, body language. Just saw him trying to just cope. I could just see a heaviness on him. Maybe the person who came closest to understanding just how bad things were was Chris's friend, D-Nice. You know, I sent him a text message, and all I said to him was, in this message, are you okay? And his response to me was no. Wow. And this and, was three wait, months wait, before wait, he passed wait, hold, away. Hold up, D, hold up. What mm-hmm. I'm saying wow is because, you know, you know, you have a you've had a different, more intimate relationship than most people mm-hmm. with Chris Lighty. But the consistent story with regard to Chris is that, you know, he was he always had this his guard up or his armor up, or he was always this chameleon. So even some of the closest people didn't know what he was going through for but for him to say that to you, that's really and that speaks volumes. It's because I didn't want anything from him. Right. I only wanted his friendship. So in that moment of like, when he said to me, 
when I asked that question and he said no, I immediately just asked him to come out and have dinner with me. And I, I won't forget, we went to we went to um, a restaurant in New York City called Catch. Mm-hmm. And we had dinner there and we we talked. At the end of the dinner, we left and we went to um, we went to hear Q-Tip DJ. And then after we left, we, we were both in the taxi. I was like, yo, we'll, I'll drop you off. And, you know, he shared with me, he's like, you know, I'm, y'all, I'm stressed, you know, like sometimes I just want to jump off the building. At the time, I didn't know what it was like to like lose a friend or to recognize the signs, but it was a difficult thing. I felt like it was my, my boy crying out for a little bit of help. You know, and even though I did help in the way that I knew how to by making myself available, those things were foreign to me. I wish I, you know, had a better understanding of that and was able to be more encouraging that we all go through ups and downs and, you know, um, things will will eventually, you know, get better. D-Nice might have seen that Chris was struggling the summer before he died, but it didn't start that summer. Through our reporting, we learned that Chris had been battling depression for some time. In 2011, a year before he died, he checked himself into a psychiatric facility called Silver Hill Hospital in Connecticut. We obtained a copy of Chris's discharge summary. One section reads, quote, He has been feeling increasingly depressed with decreased energy, desire, initiative, interest, and usual activities. His social withdrawal and impaired mood has affected the relationship with his wife and kids. He has started experiencing suicidal ideation with thoughts of jumping off his building. This was more than a little stress, more than a bad day or two. This was clinical depression. Chris was mentally ill. And this kind of sickness... It's not something people in our community like to talk about. So when Chris checked himself in and disappeared from the scene, he played it off like it was high blood pressure or a problem with his heart because that was a lot easier for them to accept and it was a lot easier for him to share. Feeling like you have to hide your mental health issues, that's something Chris's client and friend, Fat Joe, could relate to. When I sat down with him, he opened up about his own battle with depression battle he hid for many years. I was depressed for two years, seeing psychiatrists. I never thought of killing myself, but I know that's, it's a hard fight. It's a hard walk. It's a hard fight. Like I fought it for two years, man. You know, when you come out and it's 90 degrees and the sky looks dark, I couldn't sleep. I would lay down in the tub with no water and just look at the ceiling for hours and hours. It's a battle within yourself. So, you know, sometimes it wins. You know what I'm saying? People don't show that. Blacks and Latinos... uh, We're not allowed to. We're not allowed to. And uh, and that's why I tell you I went through depression, because I like to be vulnerable. I like people to know, yo, it's cool. You know, you could go through that and you could come out of that. You know what I'm saying? That's why I like to tell people certain things about me to be like, because they look at me as a mythical figure. Like, you know, this nigga, he's ready for what? No, nigga. Like, it's hard out here. You know what I'm saying? But you could get through it. Did you have any idea that Chris was battling depression? No way in the world. Lighty kept up his facade right to the last day. 
Like Sophia said, he parsed out the information. So in the end, each person who knew him had to take what they knew and make their own decision about how to grieve. For me, recently, I've just had to just kind of choose to be at peace in a way to go forward because I've literally like tortured and like tormented myself with trying to be a detective of what happened and trying to put pieces together. And then, um, so I just say that he did take his own life for me to just, you know, try to move on. I mean, there's no moving on from it. Just to bring, yeah, to bring a type of closure. We all talked about, I heard about all the theories that perhaps it wasn't a suicide. To me, that was the easier way out for me personally. Because then you have someone to direct your rage at, right? And you have someone to point the finger at. Rather than pointing the finger at him because it was self-inflicted. And grieving a homicide and grieving a suicide are completely different. Grieve a homicide, you put it all on the perpetrator. You put it all on the murderer. Grieving a suicide, you put it all on the person that pulled the trigger, but you then also put it on yourself. Because, again, you think, how didn't I see it? I was just with him less than 24 hours before. And then you play everything in your head, you know? If I had just been there, if we had just spoken that morning on the phone, if I had told him to come downtown instead of going uptown, or if I'd gone uptown with him and he'd taken me and I'd been in the car and I could have gone inside. And But in the end, I did choose to grieve it as a suicide. Chris Lighty was born in the Bronx in 1968, a time when hip-hop didn't exist. In 1979, when the Sugar Hill Gang dropped Rapper's Delight, Chris was still in elementary school. He got his real education when rap went on tour, and New York acts like the Jungle Brothers threaded their way through towns and cities up and down the East Coast. Rap had started to spread across America, and Chris was along for the ride. When rap went global, so did Chris Lighty. His artists toured the world and sold out stadiums everywhere. When Bling made it into the dictionary, when America elected a president who dusted off his shoulder and didn't hold back his love for Jay-Z, Chris was getting equity for his artists and making black millionaires. I wonder if he ever imagined that hip-hop would take him so far. If he was ever at one of those early park jams with weed in the air and bass in his chest, and he stopped to think, this thing, this stew of bass and beats and rhythm and poetry, this will take me on an incredible journey. And I wonder 
if he ever said to himself, this thing called hip hop, it's gonna change my life. But not always for the best. Sure, you get the car, you get the house, you get to live large. But this is a world that can chew you up and shit you out. A world where you have to be hard, where you have to stay winning. Chris spent his whole life running on that treadmill, and he stumbled many times. He wasn't a perfect man, not even close. As well as celebrating his success, we have to hold him accountable for his mistakes. He was complicated. He was flawed. But above all else, he was hip-hop. Chris was the Violators. Chris was the South Bronx. Chris was hip-hop in such a profound way. And nobody could ever, ever dispute that. Do you think hip-hop eventually destroyed Chris Lighty? No. I mean, he was in hip-hop and his life was destroyed. But I don't think he would ever say that hip-hop destroyed my life. No. Quite the opposite. Look at the life hip-hop gave me, Soph. I've traveled the world. I started an agency. I've been in rooms that I never would have dreamed of. I've led conversations with kingmakers and kings. No, I don't think it destroyed him at all. I think it gave him everything. And he gave hip-hop everything. Internets, thank you so much for going on this journey with us. Okay, one last time. Let's do these credits. This episode of Mogul is a production of Gimlet Media and the Loudspeakers Network. It was produced by Eric Eddings and Meg Driscoll, with help from Isabella Kulkarni, Jonathan Mena, and Peter Bresnan. Our senior producer is Matthew Nelson. What up, Matt? Hello. Our editors are Lynn Levy, Caitlin Kenny. Chris Morrow. Fact-checking by Michelle Harris. Sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw. Music direction by Matthew Bowl. This episode was scored by Nana Quibena with additional music by Prince Paul and Don Newkirk and Haley Shaw. If you like the show, please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to help new people find out about the show. Got Twitter? Follow us for all the latest news and a behind-the-scenes look at the making of the show. Our handle is at Mogul.
after it happened, I actually had a lot of, I think it's called lucid dreaming um, with my father in it. He was coming to me in my dreams. And um, I have one dream where he says, he's like, hi, Tiffany. He was like, oh, I've been tired since I've been here. And I said, Dad, why are you tired? And he said, I've been working on this deal with Biggie and Tupac. And I woke up and I was like, are you kidding me? That That's that's exactly what he would be doing if there is an afterlife. That's amazing. Working on a deal with Biggie and Tupac. <laughs> and them stressing him the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. And so he's like, Tupac's I've been tired. crazy ass. Big. <laughs> yeah. So actually it made me, it made me smile and it made me, Happy to know that he was still doing, you know, what he loves. It's like almost the perfect ending mm-hmm. to the story. Mm-hmm.